SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Mr. Powers, my job is to acclimatize you to the 90s. You know, a lot's changed since 1967. No doubt, no, but as long as people are still having promiscuous sex with many anonymous partners without protection, while at the same time experimenting with mind-expanding drugs in a consequence-free environment, I'll be sound as a pound. There's really nothing like a shorn scrotum. It's breathtaking. I highly suggest you try it. Hello, and welcome to SequelCast 2. It seems like our podcast has been overtaken by uh, Dr. Evil. Uh, it's pretty disturbing things going on here. I, I saw uh, a lot of greasy Bob's big boy uh, rappers all around the studio. But I like their beef. What can I say? They, they, they do a, a good job. They... Uh, have a good salad buffet, and you cannot pass up on their pie of the day. Um, no, I, I do have a question for you. Are you going to require me to do this entire episode in character as Dr. Evil? No, I'm not. So. Okay, good. Okay. So, just kidding. This is SequelCast 2. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy, and we are looking, if you couldn't guess from the intro, at Austin Powers. International Man of Mystery. Yeah, I forgot that was the, the full title. Um... Directed by Jay Roach, produced by Jan Blaken, Aaron McLeod, Demi Moore, that's a surprise, uh, Mike Myers and Claire Rudnick Polstein. Written by Mike Myers, starring Mike Myers, Elizabeth Hurley, Michael York, Mimi Rogers. Uh, music by George S. Clinton, cinematography Peter Deming, editor Deborah Neil Fisher, Don Haggett. This came out in 97, with a scant running time of 89 minutes. And, um, according to Box Office Mojo, it, uh, of a budget of $16.5 million, which is more modest than I would expect, given this is sort of a period piece of sorts, uh, this had a box office of $67.7 million. So this is something that it did okay, but really on video is when it became very, very popular. Yeah, it was so weird. This movie was written, at the time, despite making a lot of money, was written off as a box office failure and possibly the end of Mike Myers' career, but it was such an explosive hit on home video that it necessitated two sequels. Oh well, yeah, and specifically, uh, we should talk about it before I forget, uh, around this time in 97, you started to see the DVD uh, home video format start, start to take off, and New Line Cinema was one of the first really... Uh, great companies to have these DVDs with all these special editions. It was their new line, Cinema Platinum line, if you recall, and Austin Powers was one of their first really packed DVDs they came out with. This seemed to be like something that was in everybody's home library. Yeah, though strangely enough, not in mine. <laughs> that is very odd, because I, I recall in college you used music from these movies in some of your short films and your film classes. Yeah, the soundtracks for the for the Austin Powers movies are, are wonderful. But yeah, I lifted I lifted a lot of music, particularly from the second Austin Powers soundtrack, to use as backing tracks and stuff to play over credits. Uh, I I think it was never more obvious. So we did we did a student film called Pizza the Delivering about an old fashioned oh. vampire stalking a pizza yes. delivery boy, yes. and we had so much extra footage. We had so much extra footage when it was done, and I was able to get it edited so quickly because I had everything planned out so well. Un unusual for me. Right. I cut together a trailer, and then I cut together a blooper reel. And we had the blooper reel. The backing track for the blooper reel was the Austin Powers opening theme, which is, a, I believe, a repurposing of a Quincy Jones song that I think originally appeared in uh, Woody Allen's Take the Money and Run. Okay. You know that... Like, that's a song that predates Austin Powers by, like, t at least two decades. 
Interesting bit of trivia on the DVD, it was released in a different theatrical, uh, different aspect ratio from the theatrical version on the widescreen transfer. Really? And this wasn't corrected until it finally came out on Blu-ray uh, several, you know, probably over a decade later. Hmm. It's not something you would notice. It's going from 2, 3, 5 to 1 to 2 to 1. So that gives it a bit more um, headroom. But if you care, there you go. Uh, okay, yeah, so Austin Powers. Uh, the first time I saw this, I saw this in theaters with friends. I remember sleeping uh, in the theater during some of it. <laughs> uh, I should have taken that as a hint that I had sleep apnea, but nope. Just thought it was a normal sleeping in a movie that I was really involved in. Um, I was a big Mike Myers fan, you know, when I was younger I, I watched uh, How I Married an Axe Murderer. Um, oh, that's an underappreciated film. I love isn't that it? That, that's a great one. I wish it had a sequel. Um, maybe we should do a Mike Myers appreciation episode down the road. Or in memoriam. I mean, you never know what the future's going to hold. That is true, yeah. With the, with the way, um, yeah, you never know. And he's been talking about Austin Powers 4, but we'll save that for later. Um, Mike Myers, yeah. So, I, and I, I knew Wayne's World and everything, so I was a fan of his. And, um... It, I, I recall people in the theater, people were, like, amused. There were, like, titters and stuff. But I don't think people were as, like, hog-wild for it. But, like, by the time the sequel came out, people were hungry. But we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, I first saw this in the theaters, I think, not opening weekend, but probably the weekend after. It was it, it was the summer of 1997. Uh, I, had, uh, I had some money from a summer job. Uh, I uh, had my first car, a, a rickety uh, Ford Tempo with a can-do attitude. Uh, and my brother and I were, were budding young comedy nerds, and I just said, Get in the car, Rob! We are going to see this movie. Uh, and it was there weren't that many other people in the theater uh, when we saw it. And the, the one thing that stuck out to me is there, there are some very smart and very sophisticated jokes in this movie. I think I was the only, myself and Robert were the only people laughing at those jokes. Everyone else was only laughing at the dumbest jokes. Yeah, Mike Myers has always been good at having a mixture of, you know, really clever references and wordplay, but then he also has very physical, uh, sort of lowbrow humor, much like, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but much like Shakespeare. <laughs> it's a blend of high and lowbrow, and uh, when he's on his game, at least. Um, well, I mean, you, you know, you, you play to the nobles in the high seats, but you also play to the groundlings. And speaking of the groundlings, Mindy Sterling is in this movie. Ah, uh, yes, and... Uh, I, I had to think, would he still have been alive? I would imagine Phil Hartman would have had a part in this. Yeah, I feel like Phil Phil Hartman probably would have had the Phil Phil Hartman would have had the number two role. I, I could see that, and we're just speculating. That's uh, the one thing interesting with the with the trivia, according to Wikipedia, Mike Myers wanted Jim Carrey to play Doctor Evil. Huh? Really? So Which it wasn't been... originally a dual role. No. But on the other hand, when he, uh, I think that really makes the movie Mike Myers doing both parts, because it, it it opens on Doctor Evil, and uh, you don't. A lot of people in the audience didn't realize it was Mike Myers until he turned around, and, and you know until uh, they got a closer look at his face. But it's a, it's a good makeup job. I mean, among other things, this is uh, Austin or not Austin Powers. Mike Myers made this uh, as a homage to films he he watched with his father. Eric Myers, uh, specifically the, the old James Bond movies, but also the Peter Seller comedies, especially if you see the original uh, horrific uh, comedy version of Casino Royale. Um, I'm there's not a lot call of that Austin horrific. Powers. I'm going to defend that movie. It's awful it's, and it's all over the place, but it it's is. also hilarious. It, it functions. Yeah. It functions as a parody and deconstruction of James Bond way before we had a James Bond to deconstruct or parody. Yeah, I mean, like, only, I think, maybe two or three James Bond movies had come out by the time Casino Royale came out. Uh, it was really, um, we, we should talk about that one in some other episode, because that, it, it, you're right, it is a fantastic disaster. But specifically, the Peter Sellers, who is one of the many people in that movie that plays a character named James Bond, um, the stuff he's doing in there, he's even on a rotating bed, so much of it, Mike Myers, uh, 
you could say lifted or, or took influence for her to be awesome. He's got the same glasses, as I recall. Same glasses. Uh, I think same teeth. Um, it's not exactly the same character, but it's quite similar. And I'm not calling Mike Myers a, a thief, but you can see where he got his inspiration from. And Dr. Evil is totally a takeoff on uh, Blofeld from the uh, James Bond films. Blofeld by way of... Uh... My, by, uh, by way of the uh, of Lauren Michaels, the producer Lauren Michaels, of SNL. yeah, producer of SNL, um, and reportedly uh, Dana Carvey was kind of annoyed that Mike Myers stole his Lauren Michaels impersonation. Really, I did not know that this was based on a uh, specific impersonation. That's what Danny Carvey claimed, and he says he wishes he would have been Dr. Evil, but wasn't offered. But I don't know. There was some bad blood between Mike Myers and Danny Carvey during the Wayne's World years. Oh, that's a shame. But that's a story for another podcast. Um, but hey, Wayne's World had a sequel, so maybe one day. That's true. It is on uh, It is on Matflix, my proprietary um, movie streaming service. That's kind of a joke for nobody, so there we go. Well, you have like an AI that helps pick things to recommend for people That's watching, right. but that AI takes the form of you emailing me pics. Yes, that's right. Pics as in, uh, pics for movies, not, not pictures of um, unmentionables. God, this is weird. Okay, Austin Powers. Unmentionables, by which do you mean your wedding tackle, your twig and two veg? Yeah, um, I actually said that joke to my uh, stepmom. I said meat and two veg and she's like I don't get it <laughs> and I and then I, I refuse to explain it well that, that might be the best tactic to I, I think so because I'm like I no I'm not gonna explain uh, um, what a vague reference to a penis is or I, I really think it's not that vague but there you go okay so we've talked about penises we've talked about Austin Powers Mike Myers um his, his career at this point, uh, just sort of looking over his filmography, he had done, you know, the, those things that we had mentioned, The Wayne's World, uh, Axe Murderer, um, and that's really it. I thought he had done more movies before this time, but it's worth mentioning, four years had passed between Wayne's World 2 and Austin Powers. Yeah, like, I th I think, I guess, I guess he was concentrating on stage work. I mean, it was even rare to see him in, in bit parts. I feel like most of those bit parts didn't happen until after Austin Powers, such as like, you know, being in uh being in that one Studio 54 movie or or appearing uh or appearing out of nowhere in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, that uh that was a weird one. Um sure, and and you look at his filmography and I I'm not terribly surprised, but he he's very picky about what he does. And I think that's, uh, on the one hand, that's a good thing. On the other hand, it's sort of disappointing that we don't see a lot of work from him. And he has not been the star of a film since 2008, which is really a shame, for, for a decade at this point. God, would that, would that have been The Love Guru? Yeah. Oh, wow. Which, not count, I'm not counting the Shrek sequels, because those are cartoons, but yeah. So, it's, um... Apparently he has a small part in the upcoming uh, Freddie Mercury biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, cool. So that that could be sort of uh, interesting. And he, I, I'd like in, to think he's playing the same character he played in the Studio 54 movie. Could be, could be. And uh, he is, is going to be in a movie uh, called The Terminal, which is sort of a, a caper film. Not at all related to the one with Tom Hanks, I'm assuming. No, you know, that's what I was thinking. But it, it stars, um, has Simon Pegg as part of the cast, and Margot Robbie, who's been pretty... Uh, uh, on fire lately, and Jeremy Irons' son, Max Irons, who's been popping up and stuff. Huh. But I'm, uh, you know, on a bit of a tangent here. And this was directed by Jay Roach, who directed all three movies in the trilogy, which is fairly unusual. Um, before this, he had only done one feature that I've never seen that sounds kind of interesting about uh, warring um, radio stations. It's called Zoo Radio. Hmm. They're not animals, it's just a, a take on morning zoo. Where people are like, oh, it's Biffy and Boppy in the morning, honk, honk, and we're going to have a, 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 a vodka gimlet. It's Leroy and the Gator. <laughs> Samson and the Fox. And you know what they say about the Fox? He's f f f fantastic. Right, right in the possum. 
Ricky and the Possum. That's pretty good. <laughs> I, well, as David Cross says, it's always two guys, and one's this guy, and one's this guy. And that still is in morning radio so much to this day. Oh, and yeah. um, Portland, Oregon has a, a pretty um, horrific... I mean, this, it's, I'm going to try not to get in a big tangent with radio, because I've done some work with community radio, but... The corporations, you know, own the big, most, like, 95% of the radio you listen to. And they're just so identical. But even, like, the host seems like they're cloned in a lab, even though they're local <laughs> to whatever city you're in. Yeah, but there's the, a really specific type that always gets that job. Th there is, and it doesn't pay very well, and you have to do, not that that really matters, but and you have to do a lot of work huffing to gig to gig doing promotions. And, and the thing that's really been creeping up in radio... I'd say the past 25 years, more so in the last 10, is radio host having to do a 20-minute uh, plug on air. Hmm. Have you, have you heard that, where they're talking and they're trying to make it like a casual conversation, but it's clearly an ad that a sponsor is making them do? No, blessedly, I have not had that inflicted upon me. I see. Well, I, uh, next time, if you're driving and want to spin the dial, give any morning show a listen, and at some point they'll be like, you know, I was trying my uh, super, super duper coffee, and it tastes fantastic. It's so great. In fact, it's better than my wife. But, you know, they go on these ridiculous tangents. Speaking followed, of ridiculous... Followed oh, by oh. a honk honk, followed by a slide whistle, followed by a boing. I'm a big fan of the slide whistle. I think that's always a good laugh. But... <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, a versatile, it's a versatile sound effect because it can be used for two things. It can. It's two completely different moods. <laughs> Yeah, I guess there's no neutral slide whistle sound. <laughs> no, that would just be a whistle. <laughs> yeah. Give me a slide. Give me a slide whistle. Hold the slide. All right. This, I, I guess I'm going on such a tangent because this is a great movie, and good movies are hard to talk about. Well, no, it is weird. It is the mo the most tangents we've had on a movie that I think we both really like. Yeah. So, um, uh, I guess before we get into Austin Powers proper, one more thing. What was your familiarity with the James Bond franchise? Because I think the more you know about those. The older uh, James Bond uh, movies, uh, especially like the Sean Connery ones, the more you'll get out of this. I would I would say decently familiar. I think mm -hmm. I had seen a sampling of I think I'd seen a sampling of every Bond at this point. Uh, I think it was Pierce Brosnan, Goldeneye had had come out by this point, hadn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, so, and of course, you know, the, the Pierce Brosnan had kind of revived interest in the Bond films. So they were showing up on cable a bit more. So yeah, I did have a I did have a pretty a pretty decent background. I had also seen some other examples of excessive sixties uh, and seventies spy movies, particularly uh, in like Flynn and Our Man Flynn, the Flynn movies. Mm. Uh, the, a lot of the mod stuff uh, in these films is pulled uh, is pulled from those movies. Yeah, I, I've been meaning to see those in like Flynn movies. I was trying to watch them for preparation. They're a bit hard to track down, but um... well, the thing the thing to remember about the Flynn movies is they are satires of spy movies, but at no point do they tell you that's what they are. So if you if you watch it from the perspective that this is supposed to be a serious spy movie, you're just going to leave the theater furious. But if you come from it knowing that. They're knowing that this is breaking down spy tropes without blinking, then it's very, very enjoyable. Cool, yeah. And starring the great James Coburn, I believe. Like, you, you bought this absurd twist in the serious movie. You have no right to object to this absurd twist now. That's kind of every beat of a Flynn movie. Fantastic. Um... Yeah, I, I had some familiarity. You know, the first James Bond movie, I was living overseas. My dad went to the you know, video store at the embassy and rented us something. It was um, hmm, it was either Live and Let Die or Goldfinger. Hmm. One of those. But, um, but yeah, no, I was a, a big fan. And I think, was it like TNT or, or something, or AMC would do James Bond marathons around every Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. yeah which was a huge way to, to catch a lot of the movies. Um even though they were cut for time. And even in high school, my friends and I were into movies. This is way before sequel cast, but what we we uh, did a, a movie blog called Extreme Movie Watchers. That's a pretty 90s title, isn't it? Um, for, for uh, I don't know, maybe five or six years. And, I can hear uh, the tasty guitar lick coming off that title. Yeah. Um, 
And when we did that, you know, we, we, we did a series looking at the James Bond movies, movie by movie. We only got, I think, maybe ten movies in. But um, it was... So that was another way I was experienced with these films. But yeah, with Austin Powers, um, the, the marketing for this wasn't as in-your-face. There wasn't as much tie-ins as with the sequels. And, well, I'm uh, pretty sure the studio didn't know how to market it because, right. to, to the yeah. best of my knowledge, there were only really two pieces of marketing. One were these giant Austin Powers posters that showed up in a lot of our local theaters that really did not indicate what the movie was. I remember the first few times I saw it, I was really confused because it looked like Mike Myers was playing the mom from the Partridge family. That's funny. With uh, the hair and... Well, I mean, he's wearing a par- effectively a Partridge Family suit. He, he's he's wearing a suit that is a very specific kind of '60s fashion. Um, but then the other thing was there was a like there there was a promotional show that aired on MTV called like Austin Powers Live at the Electric Psychedelic Pussycat Club, and it was just Austin Powers in this very laughing sort of set, doing really bad one-liners, uh, showing clips from the movie, and hosting music videos. Although it is still pretty entertaining, and I think I, I think I saw that before the movie. It may have been that that convinced me to check the movie out. So looking at the uh, domestic, meaning the North American box office gross for Austin Powers, I mentioned that was $67 million. Um, what spot do you think it is for 97 12th. Try 45 Oh wow! So okay, that gives well, you an idea of how you know it didn't hit, it didn't break the hundred million club, but which at the time was a big marker, still is really a marker of success um, to some degree, depending on the budget. And okay, uh, now that I see where it ranks against the other films of the era, now I can understand more of why it was considered a box office bomb, despite yeah. turning a hefty profit. Sure, because so like some of the things that were above it in the ballpark were movies like the Val Kilmer uh, movie, The Saint. Hmm. Um, one of my favorites, Starship Troopers. Oh, uh, yeah. The Tommy Lee Jones picture, Volcano. Not to be confused with Dante's Peak. Yeah, I think Volcano came second. Or maybe? Eruption. I don't remember Eruption, but I'm not. But that was a big thing on the news at the time. So many Volcano movies. I, in my opinion, you can never have enough. Um, but below Austin Powers were movies like uh, something we've covered on the show Mortal Kombat Annihilation, um, Boogie Nights, which was more of like an art house hit. And uh, the classic, uh, the sort of, not classic, but the sort of campy, enjoyable uh, wilderness survival picture, The Edge, with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Huh. Even Romy and Michelle's high school reunion made less than Austin Powers. So did Baps. Oh, so wow, that's, uh, that was uh, written and directed by Tommy, not Tommy Davidson, Crud. I know Halle Berry was in it. I'm trying to remember. It was the, I'm trying to remember the director. It was the same guy who starred in Blank Man, if I not Blank Man, Meteor Man, if I remember correctly. Oh, the um, you know, um, yes, I, I, yeah, I think you're you're right because uh, that's funny. I just saw an article about the anniversary of Meteor Man because it was the it was the real first black superhero movie, not Black Panther, like everyone seemed to think. Oh, here we go. It's directed by uh, by Robert Townsend. That's uh, it. Written by Troy Bear. Yep. Um, Austin Powers also made more than Turbo, a Power Rangers movie. I forgot they had two of those. That would be fun to do for the show. Anyway. We, we've got three movies to pick from, so why not? Yeah. Um, the number one movie of 97, I'm sure you can guess. A re-release of Jurassic Park. No, Titanic. Oh, yep, yeah, there we go. The monster... Over two billion dollar gross. And we do worldwide. Yeah, um, I love that. Speaking of Austin Powers, someone online uh, years ago did a, a fake trailer for um, Titanic Two, oh. and it used footage. It used footage from a lot of other movies. It's pretty well cut together, but they use footage of the uh, scene where Austin Powers pees. Oh yeah, which which actually so so that that was when, and when I saw it in the theaters, that was the scene that I believe elicited the greatest roars of laughter from the audience. Um, it's not the most sophisticated gag, but 
it is it is a type of comedy that is very very rare like it was rare then and it feels like it's rarer now where you do something that's kind of funny then you keep doing it until it's not funny at all and then you keep doing it and right before you get angry as hell it suddenly becomes the funniest thing you've ever seen I don't know if it's that rare. It seems like something that Family Guy trades in a lot. Uh, for... I I haven't seen Family Guy like since like its first season, so I I wouldn't know. Yeah, you know there was there was a there was a gag there was a gag that did a few times where they say where the dog Brian goes and ladies and gentlemen Conway Twitty, and they play a live action Conway Twitty clip for um, five minutes. Yeah, I heard they go through a period around the time of the one of the writers' strikes where they would cut to music videos and just let that music video stand for five minutes. Oh, is that why they did it? Yeah, they did that with the um, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Dancing in the Street, uh, which admittedly is a pretty funny video, and then they follow it with, that happened and we let it happen. <laughs> but also, I guess we... So, should, we talk, should we talk about the, the premise of, of this film? Yeah, yeah. So it... It doesn't take place in the '60s, which is what I thought from the um, uh, poster, from the trailer, from the trailer, and everything. Instead, it's about this spy from the '60s. It tries to go against his nemesis, Doctor Evil, at the Electric Psychedelic Pussycat Swingers Club, and um, he's uh, frozen. Yeah, Doctor Doctor yeah. Evil escapes in a rocket ship, and so Austin Powers. Uh, volunteers to be frozen to be revived in the future if Dr. Evil ever returns. So then we cut to the 90s, Dr. Evil has returned, so the British government thaws out Austin Powers and teams him up with the daughter of his former his former partner in spying, uh, Miss Kensington. He gets teamed up with her daughter, Vanessa Kensington, played by Elizabeth Hurley, and I think this was the movie that introduced Elizabeth Hurley to to an American audience. I, I think you're right. You know, she was known as a a model, but it has really been in quite a lot since then. And she and she holds herself well. I like that her character is an actual character here and has some sort of regret and remorse, and has a nice little musical theme on the soundtrack. Well, she, it, she does work. She plays she plays off Mike Myers very very well. And yeah. I think and I think that so that's something that does make this movie stand out against the sequels is that is that Austin Powers does have, as goofy as it is, it does have a point, it does have a perspective, and Austin himself has an arc. Be- because of where he comes from in the 60s, he he is a, a relic of many of the best and worst things about the 60s, and, and I, especially when it comes to sexual politics. Like this, yeah, yeah. this is the closest we've ever come to a James Bond movie that is aware of its own sexual politics, and they're not afraid to criticize with it. I mean, a lot, a lot of the, the tension and comedy of this movie comes from the fact that Austin Powers as a, as a, just, just wants to have sex with everybody, and does, and modern characters are are rightly horrified because they're on the other side of the AIDS crisis, and you know they have thirty years of perspective telling them that you really need to be more discriminating with your penis. Uh, you need to take you, you 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 know sexual freedom needs to come with sexual responsibility, and they do they do account to that. I mean, I, I, I do like that Austin gets a kind of touching monologue where he talks about using the idealism from the '60s in the modern era. It really is it really is sweet. It's sweet. It's smart. You know, you were mentioning Goldeneye before. That's the only time I, there is one brief line of dialogue, and unfortunately, they don't really focus on it, which I guess is understandable because it's James Bond, but you have um, Judy Dench, you know, that's the first movie where she plays M, and she flat out tells James Bond, you're a relic, you're a dinosaur from an old age. Do we need you in modern times? Yeah, and, and, and sadly, the Bronson era of Bond never really wrestled with that question, but, but ironically enough, in this movie, they do wrestle with that question. They do, and it's... Um... I'm sure the uh, Broccoli family producing the James Bond films were a bit nervous to see a parody come out. Because it had been quite some time before there had been like a big spy parody. I wonder if they did, though, because the Bond series has buried so many imitators and so many parodies. I feel like they would, they would have just written this off as another, as another would-be king who was going to get dashed on the rocks. And there's a mixed metaphor for you. Yeah, I recall a, a recent interview with... Um, 
Oh, who's the current James Bond? I can't think of his name. Daniel Craig? Thank you. Daniel Craig said the reason why they haven't had much humor in his James Bond movies is he said he blames it on Austin Powers. Huh. Made it impossible to do humor in James Bond again. Which I think is overstating it a bit, but... So I, I want to talk about something that works, and, and, and this, this goes into to playing with conventions, but something that works very well, and who, who I know you're going to want to talk about, uh, Basil Exposition. Yes. Well, what would you like to say about him? Ah, yeah, okay, sure. That was an opening. Uh, Basically, the immortal Michael York. Yeah, Michael York is uh, known for and many other things. You know, I think it was Tybalt in the Romeo and Juliet, Michael, uh, Michael Zeffirelli film. Uh, he was in Lo- Logan's, Logan's Run, Run Logan. of course. Um, in, in the Three and Musketeers duology from the 70s. Yeah, so many, just a, a very distinct voice. And Basil Exposition is very much like uh, M. It's kind of a combination of M and Q, I guess, from the James Bond series. And he just, as his name uh, implies, he goes in these ridiculous, um, very lengthy explanations of what's going on, and he never cracks a smile, even though what he's saying is ridiculous. Well, well, he he projects like a- absolute gravitas, but he is also like he's so he's so pleasantly British. Like he seems happy. He's happiest when he's just explaining things to people. One thing that kills me on the commentary, I think, for this movie, there's a. Uh, he improvised a lot of his dialogue, and apparently there was a take where he went on for a solid twenty minutes before they stopped him, of him talking about the evil of Doctor of uh, the dangers of Doctor Evil's volcanic lair or something. <laughs> yeah, and something else I like, especially in his introduction when he's communicating with Austin through a view screen in his car, they have a lot of fun making the special effects look like really bad special effects from old spy movies. They're these really intentionally bad composite shots. Yes. Whenever Austin is driving, he's always driving through a fake rear-projected environment. And, right, and he overdoes the movement on the steering wheel. And, I, yeah, I, I like how, um, how, how it all works. It, it sets a real tone for the movie and I think that's one of the more the subtle jokes is is with the production design. I mean you look at Dr. Evil's lair and that's straight out of um it has it, like it's massive and, and has a big uh captures the the feel but without being too cheesy of how the doctor um how the blowfield layers in the James Bond movies look. Well it's, it's very much like that one mountain layer in James Bond where they were kidnapping yes, astronauts yeah. and hiding right. them in the mountain. Where you have all these like uh, people on trolleys in the background driving around and in suits and uh, and everything. Yeah, but but really for for most of this movie it's it's kind of a back and forth between Austin Powers and Vanessa Kensington traveling the world, visiting set pieces, having the occasional fish out of water moment. Then, then bouncing between that and Doctor Evil layer set pieces, and with both Austin and Doctor Evil, you get good man out of time gags. Like I, I love that. I love the notion that Doctor Evil that all of his plans are kind of stuck in the social, political, and economic world of the '60s. Uh, and as Robert Wagner, as number two, you know, points out, the shell company they created in the '60s to launder money for their evil operations has grown into a successful, legitimate business that makes more money than they could ever extort from any <laughs> world government. One of the extortion, one of the, the early jokes in the film is uh, Dr. Evil demands uh, $1 million. And that's such a lowball figure, yeah. no one in the UN <laughs> takes him seriously. I think they whisper to him, and then he's like, $1 billion, uh-huh. you know. And uh, Also, as a character, you mentioned Robert Wagner is number two. Robert Wagner... Uh, is is great casting. He hadn't really done much comedy stuff up to this point. Although, as a young man, he was in the uh, original Pink Panther film. Oh yeah, uh, actually, I bet Sellers. that's probably how he got the job. I think I think you're right. And um, also, we reveal that they used uh, Doctor Evil's frozen sperm to create a son for him, Scott Evil, played by Seth Green. Oh yeah. Who? It's a nice um, kind of spoof of like a resentful teenager and the reaction between uh scott and dr evil i think is pretty fun 
No, no, I do, I do like, I do like that they don't get along at all, and and yet they try. I mean, one of the standout scenes is when they go to family therapy, and their therapist yes. is played by uh, the beloved Carrie Fisher. That's right, and that's that's when we get one of the the movie's most often misquoted monologues. And you mentioned Mindy Sterling is in this movie, and uh, she's just great. She is uh, another one of the bad guys at that big table, Frau Farbissina. Uh, I have a, you have the feeling she's channeling very much, um, oh shit, the actress in some of the Mel Brooks movies. Oh, uh, was it Cloris Leachman? Cloris Leachman, yeah. Yes. I think it's very much that sort of a performance. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that there, particularly, uh, it's like a cross between Frau, Frau Bruja and, uh, mm-hmm. the, the woman from the, uh, hospital in high anxiety. Yes, and, exactly. And this is one of those things where, like, everything becomes a gag. It is, it is my understanding that Farbissina, it is a German phrase, and transliterated into English, it means, like, sourpuss, or stir-paste. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, like, literally, the name is what she is, this German woman who never cracks a smile. Well, okay, no, I take that back. She does crack a smile. There's a great bit where they're introducing various henchmen and assassins, and there is... Uh, well, first, I love I love the introduction to all of Dr. Evil's gangs. They all have such, like, ridiculous backstories, such as, uh, I believe it was, like, Frau Farbissina was, was kicked out of the Salvation Army for founding a militant cell of the Salvation Army that did, like, yeah. bombings and whatnot. But there's this one Irish assassin who garrots people with this chain that has these uh, these bangles on it, and it's just this great line, they're always trying to steal me Lucky Charms. And she goes off on this rant, explaining to him the Lucky Charms leprechaun, which he's apparently never heard of. <laughs> and she gets so happy when she does it. Oh, it's wonderful. It's a good bit of business. Also, I mean, this goes to show, this was only in 97, but Will Ferrell, who was still on Saturday Night Live at the time, has a very small part as Mufasa. Uh, Mustafa, yeah, and, and all he all he yeah. does is have a tan and wear a fist and get shot. Uh, he he's got one of the good, good running gags. He keeps getting injured and then commenting about his injuries off screen. Yep. And this and it's another one of those examples where they hold on it until it's not funny, and then keep holding on it until it's the funniest thing in the world. When they unfreeze Austin Powers, they sort of you know he has to go get whatever uh, equipment he had on him, supplies he had. And you have the gag about the penis pump. Oh, yes, yes. Which I thought was pretty, at the time, I thought it was pretty risque for a PG-13 movie. Yeah, and it even gets used later. It does, it does get as, used. As a weapon. <laughs> in fact, I haven't thought about this in years, but I, I rented this on video when it came out, and my grandma was, was lived with us for a month during the summer, as she tended to do, and... Uh, I thought, oh, this would be fun to watch with my grandma, forgetting all the sex jokes. Um, so that was quite awkward. Hmm. Yeah, this isn't necessarily a, a family movie, unless, no. of course, your family likes, has seen a lot of old James Bond movies and, and can appreciate the humor. Right, you have, uh, as a knockoff of Odd Job, you have a character named Random Task. Which is pretty much the most on-the-nose name in this It movie. is. And but he does have that look to him, and uh... no, he looks like he stepped right off the set of a uh, '70s era Bond film. And I, I have to say, with this film, even though they take a long time getting to Doctor Evil's, when, getting Austin Powers to Doctor Evil's lair, when it finally happens, I think they they really go for broke despite their budget. And, yeah, and you get that real cost- epic sense of scale and costume and traps. The corridors, the the, the fight yeah. choreography, and I love I love that the fight choreography is pretty decent and complex, except for Austin, who just does that one karate chop move. That's his only move, but it always works. And he says judo chop, but in the the joke about that is in judo you don't do karate chops. No, judo no, is, judo is, is all about turning your enemy's strength and momentum against themselves. This is all about throwing and pinning down people. It has nothing to do, but at the same, but he's so. <laughs> serious about it and uh also that, like when he fires a gun he starts blinking oh and yeah he, he's he looks incompetent yeah scared of the own muzzle fire so so um, and in that scene there actually is there is something that that i a, a joke they keep cutting back to where they're in this little transport cart and they need to turn around 
and I just love how much they belabor the three-point turn he's trying to do. Yes. It's to, it's to the a good point joke. where at one point the cart is wedged in an impossible angle inside the corridor. And uh, who could forget, of course, the fembots. Yeah, they appeared in a lot of the a lot of the posters, but yeah, they they created an an army of the most the most well, you know what they look like if you if you've ever seen a Playboy centerfold from the '60s, this is a twenty percent more exaggerated version of that. They all have the beehive hairdos. They all have lots yeah. of extra fuzzy bits on their lingerie. They look like the uh, the Playboy bunnies at the Playboy clubs. Um, but just, just, I love the stiff motions when automatic guns shoot out from where their nipples would be on their breasts. Oh, yeah. Which, which uh, I believe is where you were introduced to one of your favorite words, which is jumblies. Jumblies, yeah. And uh, oh, what was the word I used in college to refer to... Uh, yim-yams? Yim-yams. <laughs> Made up for some reason calling them yim-yams. We- we we are we are different men. Yeah, definitely. Both between each other, but also between ourselves back in college. Certainly. Um, but there, yeah, but it's, it's good stuff. They also get a pretty fun scene where he he uses his sexual magnetism to overload the robots. Yeah, and we get this great herky jerky quick cutting before their heads explode in this very beautifully fake way. It's a satisfying moment, and it, it's it's the tone in this movie is so difficult because, as you said, it's a loving homage to spy films, and it's a comedy. But at the same time, they don't um, wink to the audience really. Well, it's a comedy on the verge of like being a screwball comedy, but then there yeah. are, are still those moments with heart. I mean, there there's one sort of extended scene where uh, they're in a hotel in Vegas, and Kensington is asleep, and Austin has decided he's going to catch up on the 30 years that he's been missing. And there's some good gags where it's him messing with modern technology, like the Nike pump sneaker and putting yeah, a CD yeah. on an old fashioned record player, which are, which are cute. But then he's watching a VHS of like all the history he's missed. And you really sort of catch him that he's, he's heartbroken that he missed the moon landing, the fall of communism, the British invasion. And like they they play it they play it more for emotion and like it it mostly works it it is tragic that Austin, for the sake of his country, had, had like missed thirty ridiculously important years that for everyone else is just full of these cultural touchstones. Right, and I wouldn't have minded if the the sequels really don't focus on that sort of emotional aspect. They make Austin Powers into a bit. I mean, he, he is a cartoon of sorts here, but they really, uh, he I, I, as you mentioned, I, I do like his arc he has here, and it really gives a lot of uh, depth to the character. Well, well it, yeah, it gives us some emotional stakes, and it makes it, it makes it easier to care about the character. Yeah, you, simp- you empathize with him, certainly. And also, um, I, got, I gotta thank this movie for introducing me to Burt Bacharach. Oh, yeah, certainly. Burt Bacharach, the composer of so many great um, movie themes, so many songs, and uh, he just comes out on a piano introduced as himself. Well, I mean, he's he's quite literally introduced by Austin Powers. Ladies and gentlemen, Burt Bacharach! In his whole sort of date with Vanessa Kensington in Vegas. But what sort of uh, Burt Bacharach uh, numbers do you enjoy? Because he's done so many. I would say notably, raindrops keep falling on my head. I mean, that's pr- I mean that's probably the most the most widely played. I mean, on- honestly, I, it's it's mostly the 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 timber of his voice. I love the way he sounds. Like his covers are amazing. Yeah, um, he did the uh, really. We mentioned Casino Royale before. He did the excellent. Uh, sort of love ballad from that called The Book of Love, which is trademark, like, 60s The Look of Love. Uh, I can't sing, but... Yeah, yeah. it's just a lovely, heartfelt number. He also Um, did Arthur's theme. That's one of my favorites. The best that you can do. That's what friends are for. Yeah, so many hits. Uh, I wish I would have picked it up. I never did at the time, but um, the beloved Rhino Records, I don't think they're still around, but they did a, a compilation of sort of his best uh, well-known tracks. And it was like 80 tracks, because there's so much in his catalog that he's done. 
So that that's a great number. Oh, he also did What's New Pussycat. Oh yeah. Which actually that is that is another movie that is definitely influential on Certainly. Austin Powers that swinger character uh, played by Peter Sellers. Very you can see a lot of uh, a lot of that character in Austin Powers. And there's even a lot of that movie about him seeing a therapist if I recall, right? Oh yeah, Peter O'Toole, yeah, seeing a therapist. Uh-huh. So that that's another inspiration here. Um and how could we, I know we've talked about this movie for a while, but we must talk about the opening credit sequence. Yeah, this, this, is, this is an opening credit sequence that a lot of care is taken into it, because it's done to that, that Quincy Jones song uh, that, uh, that we talked about. Uh, but there is, uh, oh yeah, Soul Bossa Nova, that's the, that's the uh, song. But mm. it, 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 it's just Austin mucking about in London with a bunch of other mod 60s people, but it's also sort of a tribute to things like A Hard Day's Night because it's the credits going on, but it's also Austin running away from and towards his fans, hiding in plain sight. Yeah, and it it's also just... builds. I love that bit where, like, he runs down a corner and then comes back down the street leading a marching band <laughs> and the marching band is playing the theme song. Yeah, that Soul Bossa Nova track, you know, that later became known as the Austin Powers theme, it was off of Quincy Jones's 1962 record, Big Band Bossa Nova. Oh, yeah, wow, it even predates Take the Money and Run, yeah. It does, and he um, claims he, he wrote it in a mere 20 minutes. Well, I mean, Paul Anka wrote My Way in the Back of a Bus in five minutes. I mean, it's fascinating the <laughs> yeah. way great great pieces of music can just be, or many great works of art can just kind of be tossed off almost by accident. Uh, there's some, there's something to be said for freewheeling association in the creative process. Uh, there's another one, uh, a similar story that comes to mind is um, Sting talking about writing the, the song for the police, Every Breath You Take. And he said it's meant to be about a stalker, and he's always freaked out when people say, oh, this was the song we walked you down the aisle at our wedding. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, oh, that that's nice. <laughs> I've, that yeah, what I've I meant, that. but I'm glad you enjoy it. Um, also, we have uh, other bits of trivia. The international release of Austin Powers has more scenes in it. It's a bit longer. Um, I don't think that that cut has ever been released on video um, for whatever reason. Of course, there was deleted scenes in the DVD. Also, with um, Austin Powers, we should also mention that there's a, a wonderful scene where he's naked walking there uh austin powers and elizabeth hurley are both naked walking around and there's conveniently placed props oh yeah well that, that's at the end end of the movie where yes, they're, the they're, they kind of they've solidified their relationship austin's going to be monogamous uh and yeah right. it's it's one of those things where they just keep going on it they keep finding more and more excuses to have things block uh any of the naughty bits and, I mean, the the choreography for that is just ridiculous. I can't imagine how long that would have taken. Well, isn't it, isn't it it's one sustained take? or there? I can't remember if there were yeah. any cuts in that. Um, if it's not one sustained take, it's damn close to it. But you have to, you know, the camera has to be on a track. The actors really have to be on their marks. And then they're also delivering dialogue at the same time and, and moving around and stuff. Yeah. So it's it's just a really hard... As someone that has made not very good short films back in college, um, it, it, it's just so much so difficult to do something that choreographed and that perfect. I mean, that must have taken days for them to film. I can't imagine. Yeah, but I mean, also Powers. It's it's one of those. It's one of those. And I don't think they meant this to be sequel setup. But you know, Austin Powers foils you know Doctor Evil's doomsday plan. But Doctor Evil gets back in his rocket ship, which is hidden inside a big boy statue, uh, blasts off into space, getting frozen again. Um, you know, vowing vowing revenge. Uh, but Austin's last struggle is he's finally attacked by Random Task, who we see decapitate a statue with a shoe. And I love that they point out that a, sh- that, that a shoe, or really any piece of clothing, is not typically a practical weapon. I love that when he throws the shoe at Austin Powers, it's just like in the real world. If you throw a shoe at somebody, it hurts. It can even hurt really bad, <laughs> but it's not lethal. Hmm. Right, and um, just overall, this Austin Powers, this first movie is great. I forgot... 
how many character moments there are between uh, Mike Myers and Elizabeth Hurley, and um, it—it's the rare thing. It's the first movie in a series that doesn't feel like the whole plot is just trying to. It you know it doesn't feel forced introducing all the characters and the scenarios. It's confident right out of the gate, and that's very unusual. Well, I think it helps that it, it kind of assumes you've seen at least one James Bond movie, so a lot yes. of stuff can be sketched out really roughly. That's true. Right. But then that yeah. gives the movie plenty of room to fill in the character stuff, like Dr. Evil's monologue about his father, or uh, or Austin Powers coming to terms with the 30 years of history he's missing. Yeah. Uh, also a thing that from the 70s that Austin Powers brings is loads and loads of chest hair that he's not afraid to show off. Oh, yeah. Well, also the bad British teeth, which at the ah, end... Ah, yes. And I'm going to point this out because I have a thing I need to talk about on this for the next episode for Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. But at the end of the movie, when he's chilling out with, uh, with Vanessa Kensington, he's had his teeth fixed. Ah, good point. Yep. Um, so what do you think about... And any last thing about Austin Powers you want to talk about? Not really. I mean, it's it's um. There's there's a lot there's a lot to recommend in to recommend in this movie. Uh, and uh, it's it's you know what it's kind of like airplane. It's so packed with so many different kinds of jokes. If you hated the joke you just saw, give it twenty seconds. There'll be a joke that you'll like. Exactly. It is. Um, that is well said. I yeah. Sequel yes for me. Uh, fantastic for me too. Yeah, fantastic film. Uh, Mike Myers has almost never been better. Um, I might prefer the original Wayne's World to this, but this is pretty damn good and, and confident. And uh, you know, whatever break Mike Myers took for four years to develop this script and these characters, uh, it was worth it. You know, not only did it launch a franchise, but it made a, a damn good movie that that works, whether or not you've seen. Uh, 60s and 70s spy films, but of course the more of those you've seen, the more enjoyment, and I think this is a film you get more jokes as you get older. There's a lot going on mm -hmm. here. There's a lot densely packed, where there's visual jokes of things way in the background of the frame, or, or what have you. So... Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to pick apart. Yeah. Pitch a sequel. Um, I had something in mind, Thrasher. Oh, yes, go right ahead. So, after the end uh, of the movie, we have Austin Powers is newlywed, he's, he's happy, and then he is thinking about um, his, his other villains from the past, besides Dr. Evil, that he battled throughout the years. And it would be sort of like a series of... Um, kind of like creep show or something, a series of short stories, where it's Austin Powers, he's writing his memoirs as the wraparound. And, uh. and you get to see these short um, period pieces. Uh, I, I imagine one of the one of the villains would be some sort of karate-focused villain. Um, he'd probably have a takeoff of, uh, instead of the man with the golden gun, the man with the golden penis pump. Um, <laughs> he, would, he would kind of do these little vignettes with these different characters, and in a way, I think it would also work as a backdoor pilot for a television series. Interesting. And, which we and, almost got. The, yeah, an animated series, that's right, on HBO. And it would be called... Austin Powers' Greatest Bits. Hmm. Alright, well I think I'm going to do... I'm going to do, well, so so Austin Powers has had his character development, so I think it's foolish to do a sequel. So instead, I want to do a prequel. I want to do okay. Austin Powers' uh, Moon Faker. And mm. the, prem the premise of this film is that Dr. Evil has organized, so I really like the idea of Mike Myers playing multiple characters. So for this movie, uh, it takes place before the events of the first film. Uh, in the early 60s, Dr. Evil has decided he wants to take over the world, but he can't do it alone. So he's organized an international society uh, with a preposterous name, like Swallow. Swallow will be the name of the series, kind of like Thrush from The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Uh, yes. Uh, 
And so it's all international Bond-type villains, So, but they're all played by Mike Myers. Mike Myers plays all these Bond-type villains. you got Dr. Evil, but then you've also got like your, your uh, Russian villain. You've also got your, uh, your uh, Asian villain. You've also got uh, your like American like Texas oil baron-type villain. All these characters. But And I, I do want to point this out. The, uh, the villain that he plays from China isn't actually Chinese. Mm. The premise behind the character is that he's a British citizen raised in China who just wears the clothes and grew out a fake Fu Manchu mustache. I see. And has turned himself in, into that type. So I want, I, like, I want to use that character to actually comment on things such as the time James Bond had quote-unquote surgery to pass as Japanese. Now, what about this, Japan, this uh, character posing as Japanese? Um, what about his speech patterns? What would that be like? Uh, I feel like he would have an accent that he does horribly, but he would keep forgetting to do. Like, whenever he's under stress, it would slip out, and he'd become a cockney. I see. Oh, what are you doing there? Oh, where's me laundry? Um, but anyway, so they have uh, they have built a base on the moon, and they're going to make a giant laser that they're going to use to start attacking the Earth, unless, of course, you know, the Earth is theirs. So uh, Austin Powers... So what? Ha- so the premise is... NASA starts a moon landing program under Kennedy, and he he meets President Kennedy, and in fact they have a three way with uh, with uh, Marilyn Monroe, and uh, it turns out like the whole moon la- the whole American moon landing was fake, but it was to distract Doctor Evil and his posse from Austin Powers doing a real British moon landing to assault their base. Hmm. And so, so that's so that's going to be the joke: is that the American moon landing was fake, but to cover up a real moon landing. <laughs> so, who would play uh, Stanley Kubrick? Oh Lord, so, someone from SNL. Actually, you know, you know, you know what? Just for fun, Horatio Sands. Yeah, I could see that. He's he's lost weight with the beard. He could resemble him. Oh yeah, that's what I'm thinking. The beard. It would have to be the beard. And the whole thing, and you know, we'll have the original Ken, uh, uh, Mrs. Kensington. There'll be there'll be a huge showdown uh, on the moon, uh, and in the end, there'll be a huge showdown on on the moon. Uh, the moon base uh, will uh, blow up, but to make sure that no one on Earth sees it, they will change the orbit of the moon so the base is facing away from the Earth when it blows up, and then they'll put the moon back as if no one will notice the moon spinning around really, really fast. Pretty clever. I like it. Uh, but it'll all be. But where the base exploded, that will be the sea of tranquility. Where eventually the United States does land on the moon. Well, I got a question for you, Mister Thrasher. What's that question? What you're watching? Uh, a lot of things. So uh, I'm coming to the tail end of a massive period of watching uh, superhero movies. So uh, just the other day, I saw Teen Titans go to the movies. Oh, how was that? While we're talking about parodies of things, okay. I loved it. It is one of the funniest movies I've seen this year. That being said, if you don't like Teen Titans Go, you're not going to like this movie. Uh, Likewise, if you need your superheroes taken seriously, you are not going to like this movie. How does Nicolas Cage do as the voice of Superman? Really well. Mm. Like, all, all all the, like, serious DC heroes in this movie are very, very well cast. Patton Oswalt does a great job as the Atom... But yeah, Nicolas Cage, and it's not just like a cameo, like Superman makes several appearances in the movie, and Nicolas Cage Cage does a good enough job that it really does make me wish we could have seen him in a live-action Superman movie. It's too bad. Like, Um, he clearly cares about what he's doing, even though it's something of a parody role. Right. Uh, Something that I saw was a sequel, I was checking out potential stuff we could cover on the show, and this was a um, a direct-to-video sequel, one of two, to the movie Dracula 2000. I'm talking about Dracula 2 Ascension. Wow, I did not know there were more than one there was more than one sequel to that. Yeah, the third one is Dracula 3 Legacy. It is a sequel in the loosest sense in that Dracula is the villain, and this is an unfortunate sequel in which um I like some stuff about it, but um think of a Dracula movie where Dracula is chained up the whole time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the concept is Dracula's body is burned to a crisp, found by some medical students, and uh, when when they're 
I can't even say it without laughing, but like they play the moment seriously. But when they uh, are investigating his teeth, <laughs> fangs pop out and it affects somebody. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 okay. There's some nice gore. Uh, you have the late uh, Roy Scheider plays a priest. Um, the one really cool actor in it is uh, Jason Scott Lee, uh, plays um, Father Fuzzy, who's sort of a, think of like a, kind of like an Asian version of Blade. Um, Jason Scott Lee might be best known for playing Bruce Lee and Dragon the Bruce Lee story from the early 90s. Hmm. But, but he, he, he holds himself pretty well, but um, otherwise there's a lot of, you can tell like it's low budget because most of it takes place in a hollowed-out swimming pool, which is where they have Dracula trapped with uh, iron chains coated in silver. <laughs> All right, so, so Dracula 2000, I saw that in the theaters because I was in the mood for a cheesy Dracula movie and Jerry yeah, Ryan yeah. was in it. And uh, I remember a few days afterwards, this was again back in college, I was talking with one of the, uh, one of the students in, uh, I think my... My anatomical drawing two class, and that the subject of that movie uh, got brought up, and uh, the person said, "Oh, Dracula 2000, yeah, all hype, no bite." And all I is, how long were you sitting on that? Too long. Were you I... steering the conversation in the direction of Dracula 2000 just so you could use that line? Probably. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he had headlines like, "What this movie sucks." Uh, oh, that's too easy. What happened to the other 1,999 Draculas? That's not even a headline that's a bit boring. Nosferatu, more like no Nos. for anyone. <laughs> I thought you were going to more like Nosferatu. Well, I was like, no, for Yeah. Um, one interesting thing of this Dracula 2 Ascension movie is... Uh, you, uh, Jason London is in, it, is in it, who I have not seen in a movie since Mallrats. Hmm. So, does anyone ascend in that movie? You know, um, actually, Jason London, I thought he's not in Mallrats. I was mistaken. That was someone else. Because it's like Ascension, Reckoning, and like the words like that are the laziest things to attach to a, to a movie's title. I feel like they, and they never pay off. Yeah, the closest thing is that the Ascension is Dracula's revival. He is brought back to life by being oh, okay. soaked in a bathtub of blood. And I, I did appreciate they tried to go uh, do a vampire story from like uh, kind of like an ER medical angle, but it um, well, if we ever discuss it for the show, I'll go into more details at that time. I I had fun with it, but at the same time, it's. Um, I've seen better vampire movies. Hmm. Yeah. All right, so let's do... You have a scene pulled up for us to do, is that right? Yes, yes, I do have a scene pulled up for us to do, uh, containing your... Uh, containing Basil Exposition and Austin Powers. So I'll be Basil. You want to be Austin? Uh, yes, please. And the setup, the setup for this scene, um, this is, uh, this is uh, shortly after Austin's been revived. There, there's, a, there's a bit in the opening scene where there's a person in the room and it's just, it's, you know, straight out of James Bond. He pulls that woman, he, there's a woman in the room, he pulls the woman's wig off and it turns out to be a male assassin. So in the modern age, he's talking to Basil Exposition and there's a woman in the room and he starts beating the hell out of her, insisting that it's a male assassin. It, in fact, is Basil Exposition's mother. Yeah. Um, so, let's begin. Austin, you have a lot of explaining to do. I'm sorry, Basil. I thought she was a man. Damn it, man. You're talking about my mother. Oh, well, you have to admit, she's rather man-ish. Austin! Well, no offense, but if that's a woman, it looks like she was beaten with an ugly stick. This scene did get big laughs when I saw it in the theater. Well, the phrase beaten with an ugly stick, that's a... <laughs> that's, that's a great line. It's, yeah, very, uh, very evocative. And you're right, in a lot of the, those, those spy movies, they do have men um, dressed as women. And it's usually not very good disguise. Well, no, it's like, well, well, 
at least I'm trying to remember which which Bond movie. There's a there's a late era Connery Bond movie where that happens, but the assassin in disguise isn't even trying to pass for a woman. Yeah, and also you know we've seen James Bond movies. There are plenty of femme fatales and woman assassins that could have been dispatched. I don't understand why the drag is necessary. I mean, yeah, going, drag- back, going back to the sexual politics, it does it does it does make the, the those moments in the movie seem kind of transphobic. Right. Whether they meant uh, that or not, it's there. What's not transphobic, and I think sort of an amusing detail that wasn't cut by the director, in one of the movies, um, one of the James Bond girls is a... Uh, oh, was, trans, it was a trans woman? Was a trans woman, yes. Oh, that's right. Huh. And the director didn't know and didn't care, which was cool and very progressive at the time, and it's... Uh, I, it might be an octopus, yeah, I'm not sure, but it's in one of those late-period Roger Moore films. Hmm. And in fact, if you like James Bond movies, um, it, they're not as special features on the DVDs or Blu-rays, unfortunately, but you can find them on YouTube. The BBC did a really good special about the James Bond women, where they talked to all of them throughout the years. Oh, cool. And they also did a really good one about the James Bond theme songs, um, where especially they slag off on the theme song to Die Another Day, where they talk to the title creator of that movie, the people that did the titles. And it's a scene where, if you recall, Pierce Brosnan is being tortured in, in a jail cell for like a year. And he very curtly says, you know, when I put, you know, like three months of work into this title sequence of James Bond being tortured, I did not expect a Madonna, this was not meant for a Madonna techno song to be slapped on top of it. Well, be- beyond that, that song, it looks like it was written by pulling words out of a hat. Sigmund Freud, yeah. It, um, I kind of like the song, but it, it, it is... Oh, no, no, it's a, it, it's, it's a fun... <laughs> if, it, if it was playing in the club, I would get down to it. But in any other context, it does not work for me. Yeah, it's more of a song you would play for like a dance-off in RuPaul's Drag Race. Hmm. Like, that would be a good lip-sync for your life number. But... That's neither here nor there. Okay, so um, you can catch me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can catch me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Catch the show uh, on Twitter at SequelCast2. Listen to us on Stitcher, and our theme song is written and performed, as always, by Mark with a C. Check out his website at markwithac.bandcamp.com. So for SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. Name Austin Danger Powers. Six. Yes, please. Very good, Austin. Now, let me tell you about the volcano. It is full of such fire and brimstone, it would take over the city of Los Angeles in 20 minutes. However, you only have 15. This is That's a noble a vision. Dante's Peak, baby, yeah. It is a Dante's Peak. Speaking of which, I think I see something coming right, right off your shorts. Looks like you're pitching a tent of a different sort. You need a few minutes, Austin, to get yourself situated. It's a regular deep blue sea, baby, yeah.